in a bonus episode of Boss Files, from public housing in Brooklyn, New York, to a potential bid for the White House, Howard Schultz opens up like you've never heard him before. For some reason, I uh, cursed my mother at the age of 15, uh, something I obviously should should not have done. My mother uh, shared that with my father, and all I remember uh, was being in the shower and him storming in, opening the shower, and then with his fists, uh, just beating me to a pulp. And uh, um, it's interesting because whenever I tell this story, I can I can feel my father on me. He details all of it in his new book, From the Ground Up, as America waits for the former Starbucks chairman and CEO to give his answer. Will he run for president? He says he's seriously considering an independent bid for 2020. I believe that the current system of broken politics, revenge politics, a lack of compromise, self-interest, self-preservation, constant party over country, day in and day out, is presenting a situation that could be cataclysmic for the country in terms of we are on a collision course with time, in terms of our democracy, our values, our ability to come together, the division in the country. The only way I believe that that can change if there's a new level of leadership that changes the system. And I would only do this if I thought I can win. But what's the path he sees for an independent to actually win the White House? Plus, his vision for America, his candid take on President Trump, and the state of our union today. Here's my conversation with Howard Schultz. Howard Schultz, thank you for being here. Papi, it's my pleasure and way overdue, I think. (laughs) I've covered you now for the better part of a decade. And there is so much I have learned about you from this book, from the ground up, that I had no idea about. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, We'll dive deep into that. uh, And we'll dive deep into the politics and a potential presidential bid. Uh, But let's talk about the elephant in the room first before we get into your personal story. Why are you seriously considering a bid for the presidency in 2020, not as a Democrat, when you have told me countless times that you've been a lifelong Democrat? Why now as a centrist independent? Well, I think everyone has been asking me that question. And to the outside world, it might seem a little complicated. To me, it's pretty simple. Uh, If you ask ask the question, what kind of country do you want to live in? and then you link that to the degree of toxicity and the self-interest and ideology of both parties unwilling to work together on behalf of the American people. Mm -hmm. And if you ask yourself, are we satisfied and do we trust the government today? Uh, I think both parties, there's not equivalency, but both parties are complicit in their inability to reach a compromise on on most simple issues, let alone the the ones that are most complex. And I've come to the conclusion that the only way, in my view, to make a significant contribution in the lives of American families who are being left behind is not to embrace the status quo and to give the American people a simple choice. And the simple choice, in my view, is if we embrace the status quo of a broken system and government not working for you, it's going to continue to lead lead to decline. Or let's give the American people a better choice. And that better choice, by the way, is a great expression of democracy, which would lead, lead, in my view, to renewal. If you can win, and we will get into that in a little bit, Yeah. 
But before we move on to your story and, and your childhood and what brought you to this point, Howard, when did you stop being a Democrat? I, you know, I think I started, I think the party started losing me uh, when the party started shifting so far left to progressive policies that I know in my heart are as false, and I, I, I say this with respect, but it's true, as false as President Trump telling the American people when he was running for president that the Mexicans were going to pay for the wall. So when was that? You're referring to Medicare for all, for example, right? Well, if you add up the three policies that seem to be the backbone of the current Democratic Party uh, in terms of the 2020 process, mm -hmm. it's free Medicare, free, med free health care for everybody, free, free college degree and a, and a job for everybody. And that adds up to about $40 trillion in 10 years. Well, that's not going to happen on the foundation of a $21 trillion debt. So it's not true. We, we're going to dive into and debate those issues. Okay. But to put a button on it, when was it for you, Howard? Was it, a, was, it a, was it a member of Congress, a candidate saying something when you thought this isn't my party anymore? When was it? Was uh, it pre-Donald Trump, post-Donald Trump? No, I think it was over the last two years okay. uh, when this started. Well, I think in the last two years under this president, and seeing such disgrace and a lack of civility and dignity in the office, for one, and then the Democrats uh, not being willing on any level to try and reach a compromise on issues that I think the American people are longing for. But the issue here for me is about leadership and trust. Was, was there a moment for you? Uh, no, I don't think there was one moment. I think this was something that was evolving. So much of what has shaped your life and why you're sitting here today, finally answering my question of will you run for president that I've asked more than a dozen times, a little bit more definitively with a you're seriously considering it, um, is your childhood. So from the ground up details all of this in your new book. The last stop in the L train, Canarsie, Brooklyn, is where it all begins. And your childhood was really tough. What was the hardest part? I think the hardest part was growing up in a family where I felt a high degree of shame and insecurity and vulnerability and then uh, an ongoing level of trauma, never really knowing uh, what was going to happen when I opened up that apartment door. And then of course seeing my parents financially struggle day after day for so long, uh, it, it had such a significant impact on me. And I think uh, as I grew, grew up, uh, I never dreamed that I would be in a position to build a company or run a company, but everything I've tried to do at Starbucks in so many ways was trying to build the kind of company my father never got a chance to work for. You grew up in public housing yes. in Brooklyn, New York. At night, you're a kid, you're a little boy, and you're hiding under your sheets or in the stairwell while there are these illegal poker games going on in your house. Yeah, you know, I write about this in the first chapter, and I think people are shocked to hear that my grandmother uh, basically was a professional gambler who hosted as a profession card games uh, where she was both the host, the bank, the, sh the Shylock, uh, and those games, because my parents were trying to raise, to trying to support their family, those games one night moved to my home my apartment and I walked in as a young kid, I was probably 10, and all of a sudden uh, for the next few years, three to four nights a week, those card games and those 
characters, those people, uh, under my grandmother's watch was hosted in my house and I was uh, sent to my room and stayed there the entire night and uh, that was very, very difficult. My mother was the hostess. Uh, she was abused uh, by those people and my grandmother and my father was the chauffeur. And so you can imagine the impact that that might have had on a young kid uh, and then trying to hide that from the other kids in the, in the building and from other people. What did you think when you were hiding, either you know, in your room or, or in, the, in, the, in the cold, yeah. I'd imagine, cement stairwell of public housing? Yeah, I used to go to the stairwell to just try and hide and escape. And I think there were two things going on. I was obviously trying to escape the trauma that I was experiencing as a young boy. And I also was dreaming, trying to imagine, is there a way to get out? Is you there were, a way to escape? You were dream I mean, because you've talked about your childhood as both sort of haunting you and driving you. Yes. Uh, the drive, in, in a very perverse way, uh, came from the fear of staying in that environment and asking myself how to get out. But my mother, uh, despite her own issues of suffering from depression, um, and the relationship with my father had this unbelievable belief in the country. And she imprinted and instilled in me from the earliest of age that regardless of our station in life, you were going to make it out, you're going to go to college. And I write about an experience that happened. So uh, when I grew up, there was no public library. So we had a bookmobile. And every Wednesday, she would take me by the hand and we'd go get a book at the bookmobile read the book for the week and then return it. And then one day, I thought we were going to the bookmobile, take me by the hand, and we get on a bus. You're seven years old. Yeah, I don't know where we're going. And uh, get off the bus is probably a half hour bus ride, and then we're walking, she's holding my hand, and then we get to a large, large crowd. And unbeknownst to me, I can't see over the crowd, but I hear the voice of a young man who is the senator of Massachusetts running for president, and it was John F. Kennedy. My mother had this unusual relationship, intimate relationship from afar with John F. Kennedy, as if he was speaking to her. And she believed uh, in her bones that he gave her the right, the license to believe that her son was gonna make it out. And I think the tragedy of my life, in a way, is unfortunately she did not really get to see my success and if if she even had a idea that her son was considering running for president uh, it, it would just be a unbelievable emotional moment for us all because she died when you were how old? she died about six years ago but yeah. in her later life later part of her life she was suffering from dementia so here's your mother it, it, difficult at moments complicated as you describe her but also a light for you. Yes. Your father, you describe him in the first pages as closed off and unapproachable, and he beat you. Yeah, he did. Uh, so my father's story is uh, he came back from World War II with uh, yellow fever. Uh, he never spoke about what happened in the war, not one word ever. Uh, I can only imagine that certain things took place, but uh, he ended up uh, for 30 years uh, having a series of blue-collar jobs, uh, one kind of job after another that kind of beat him, beat him down. He never felt respected or valued. 
he began to view himself as a victim, even though he didn't take personal responsibility. And that bitterness manifested itself in a level of behavior at times that was difficult and there was some rage. And I was physically abused as a kid. There is a moment I will never forget. Of course, you will never forget it. That you describe in detail. At 15 years old, you talked back to your mother. Yes. A few hours later, you're in the shower. Your father comes home. What happens? So... Uh, for some reason, I uh, cursed my mother at the age of 15, uh, something I obviously should, have, should not have done. My mother uh, shared that with my father, and all I remember uh, was being in the shower and him storming in, opening the shower, and then with his fists uh, just beating me to a pulp. And... Uh, um, it's interesting because whenever I tell this story, I can, I can feel my father on me. Right now? Uh, yeah, I can. I can. And um, uh, blood dripped down into the shower, and uh, I couldn't go to school for a couple of days. And um, it was obviously a terrible episode and incident and really uh, something that uh, unfortunately occurred. And... and uh, but it, it did not define my relationship with my father. How? Well, because we also had wonderful moments. We, the moments that we had that were unique and special and memorable were at Yankee Stadium. Uh, that's where my relationship with my, with my father really was elevated, sitting in the right field bleachers watching our beloved New York Yankees baseball team. Um, but my, my father and I had a complicated relationship, and he was a man that had no purpose and uh, suffered the indignity of just never finding a job or a place professionally where he ever felt valued, respected. And certainly, there were so many pressures with money. I mean, our apartment was $96 a month, and we constantly had bill collectors calling, and they'd put me on the phone to try and tell them that my parents weren't home. Your parents put you on the phone as a kid yeah. to deal with the bill collector. Yes, yeah. You said a moment ago, and you've said this actually for years, that part of you building Starbucks was, in your words, to try to build the kind of company your father never got a chance to to work for, to build certainly, or to work for yeah. even. But that made me wonder if you think that capitalism failed your father. I don't think capitalism failed my father. I think that in the 50s and 60s, if you were a blue-collar worker, um, the programs and the benefits that were in place were not suitable and compatible with a working-class family and person. And, and the, the specifics of that situation is my father got hurt on the job. Uh, he was a truck driver delivering and picking up cloth diapers, fell on a sheet of ice, and he was basically fired for getting hurt on the job. Hurt no workman's compensation, and we lost health insurance. And that uh, completely fractured the family. And uh, I remember literally the Jewish Family Services Organization delivering food uh, to the apartment because there was no money for food. And uh, 19, in, the, in the late 80s and before Starbucks was public, 
the reason, the primary reason why I felt so strongly that we needed to provide comprehensive health insurance 20 years before the Affordable Care Act was because I grew up in a family without health insurance. I knew the fear of that. There were a number of shareholders, big investors, who told you when you decided years ago, okay, Starbucks is going to provide health insurance to even our part-time workers, I think that work 20 hours a week or so. It was costing you more than coffee beans annually. And some of the investors thought that's really not a good idea. How much of your decision to push forward with that, not abandon it, was because of your father? I think completely because of my childhood experience. But the lesson I learned along this way, uh, which I've been criticized for a number of times, is that in business, every business decision should not be an economic one. And if you think about what we did as a company, providing comprehensive health insurance, ownership for every person, including part-timers, and then three years ago, free college tuition available for everyone at Starbucks. These are not programs that are mainstream corporations, and yet, our stock price since, we, since 1992 is up over 23,000%. Up next, more of my conversation with former Starbucks chairman and CEO Howard Schultz and his revealing personal journey from public housing in Brooklyn, New York, to a potential bid for the White House. Your experience in college, right, after football scholarship yeah. didn't yeah. work out, you gave blood to help pay for college? So my mother, my parents couldn't send me any money. Uh, I took student loans, like many people did, but I had no extra money. I worked, and mm -hmm. whenever they would accept my blood, I gave blood. I'm not embarrassed by that. That's just what I had to do uh, to survive. And I think uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why when I went back into, into uh, a cultural audit at Starbucks, which is a questionnaire, and I found out that 70% of, of our people at Starbucks had gone to college but didn't finish because of their debt. I wanted to try and do something about that. And then we created something that had never been created before, which was free college tuition in, in partnership with Arizona State University. And all these things are innovative programs that are not a proxy for the country. However, what is a proxy for the country is we must reimagine so much of our government programs that are not working for the American people. And the reason they're not working is because the two parties will not work together because every day is revenge politics. And that is why, going back to your original question, I believe that it's time to kind of disrupt the system. And the only way to disrupt the system is to change it. And we're going to talk about all of that. But I do want people also, before we get there, to, to know about a key moment in running Starbucks and a key decision you made. Because you write in the book, in me, injustice sparks a restlessness. Mm -hmm. And the injustice that you experienced as a child and that, that your family experienced. Tell me about the pivotal moment when you made the decision that Starbucks would be much more than a coffee company, whether it was letting a, 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 someone in the audience at a shareholder meeting who said you shouldn't be speaking out about L LGBTQ rights like this. And you, you let them have it and you said you can right. take your money elsewhere if you'd like, right? Or asking people not to bring guns into Starbucks stores. Yeah. Or taking on race twice. When was that moment? Because in all the years I've interviewed you, I don't think I've ever un un fully understood when that moment was and why. 
okay, there was one moment, I don't know if that was the defining moment, but there was a moment where uh, a young man, I write about this in a book and in the previous book named Jim Kerrigan, uh, who came to us and said he had to leave the company. Uh, and this was a time in America where the word AIDS was like leprosy. And you heard it and you didn't understand it and you were, even people were concerned, can I be in the same room with this person? Let alone be a barista at Starbucks. And I decided uh, that we had to pay full insurance for him and his partner and that we had to do everything we can if he had to go into hospice. Now this was a controversial decision at the time because people did not know how to deal with the issue of AIDS. But the issue in front of me then and all the years at Starbucks and as we sit here today is the issue of humanity. And I think my whole life has been trying to make decisions uh, through the lens of humanity and do what's right even though if it wasn't in our economic interest. That was probably the first time where I realized that the role and responsibility of a company is greater than just making money. You have talked though, Howard, about a systemic problem with capitalism and, and you know, Wall Street yeah. and the quarterly earnings expectations, etc. Yes. and yet look at what has happened with Starbucks over the years and the explosive growth and the yeah. shareholder return. How do you balance those things? I mean, what is, what is the solution, the fact? Well, I think the solution is that there, every major corporation, I believe, uh, should understand that their responsibility, especially given the level of inequality that exists in America, is to try and create the fragile balance between profit and responsibility. So what is that responsibility? I think we need to do much more for our employees that work for us mm -hmm. and much more for the communities we serve. But going back to President Trump's uh, tax break that he gave every corporation, which remember I was you called it you know, fool's very gold. vocal against, uh, which I think is going to turn out to be not only fool's gold, but, but is really going to cost the American taxpayers so much money. Was, was not only a mistake, but in my, in my view, demonstrates the lack of understanding uh, of this is not a time in America to give a corporate tax break to every corporation in America without addressing the systemic problem of millions of Americans who don't have $400 in the bank for a crisis. So there has to be a deep understanding that we need comprehensive tax reform that takes into consideration that the promise of the country in which we were founded on, that there, there's such a lack of access to millions of Americans who are being left behind. And if we want to have the America that we all love and admire and respect, then we've got to bring those people along with us. And there has to be more skin in the game, both for individuals who are of privilege and certainly corporations not, who shouldn't receive a 21% tax cut just for being a corporation. There are also some progressive liberal ideas that you uh, really dislike as well on the tax front. So we will talk about those. Yes. But, but on the social issues, finally, at Starbucks. Yes. Race. Yes. Chapter 17, the title, The Third Rail in the Third Place. You say that both times you tried to tackle race and have a, have a candid discussion about race relations in America as CEO of Starbucks, you failed both times. Yeah. 
Why did you fail? Well, I think the question that I try and pose to myself is um, I don't want to be part of a problem that I identify by being a bystander. And so I've tried sometimes unsuccessfully to elevate the national conversation on things that I thought were, that I think are important by leveraging the fact that 100 million people a week go through Starbucks stores. And since we've been a company that has a long history of trying to do things the right way and being a humane organization, I thought I had an opportunity to elevate the national conversation about race. Unfortunately, it didn't go well. The Race Together campaign. It did not go well. The blowback was immense. Um, and I wonder if you think it was worth it. Uh, it's, well, it, what's interesting is if you talk to our people today and you ask them, what are you most proud about of the last decade at Starbucks? One of the things that are at the top of the box is the initiative of Race Together. Really? Yeah, that our people are most proud of because the company had the courage and conviction to try and face this. But what I say publicly is it was my idea to kind of push the limits, yeah. to try and do something that had not been done before, to take the road less traveled on race. It didn't work, and who was responsible? I was. I, I, I take and full responsibility. Melody Hobson, your board member, yeah. president of Aerial Investments, warned you about the perils of a white man taking on this mantle. And then just as you're getting ready to step down, that the, the arrest of two black men in the Starbucks store in Philadelphia happened for no reason. They were just sitting there. And, and you call that in the book, Howard, a blow to our soul. And as you approach a potential run for the White House, yes. whoever the next president is, they will have to tackle with and, and address this very, what is seemingly an intractable issue in this country, right. and that is the state of race relations. Yeah. So what have you learned about that? Well, what I've learned is, uh, first off, uh, what is the role and responsibility of a leader? And the role and responsibility of a leader is to try and create a vision for an organization or a vision for the country mm -hmm. that has to be steeped in a level of trust and confidence that this is what we're trying to do. Uh, but the role of a leader also is not to ignore some systemic issues in an organization or in a country. Uh, so I would, I, let, me, let me say it this way, I, I have great faith in the goodness and the kindness of the American people. Uh, there has to be a way for us to come together as a country on a number of issues, but it's not going to come together under the administration of, of President Trump. He needs to go, and I don't believe that the two parties will ever work together in our lifetime just because there's a potential of a Democrat winning the White House. Nothing will change. So why you, Howard Schultz? Why are you the person that you think can oust President Trump from the White House without any party infrastructure, any party backing, and a ton of blowback from Democrats? Well, first off, I'd say uh, to get this kind of uh, reaction in the last 48, 48 hours from the elite from the Washington insiders, uh, from the core of the Democratic Party. Uh, anytime you threaten the system and the apparatus, and I've, I would also say that the DNC and the RNC have set up such high levels of restrictions and impediments 
to almost not allow an independent person to run for president is un-American. It's not just the elite, Howard. I mean, I was at the book event this week when a yeah. heckler yelled out, an average Joe yeah. in the audience, yeah. don't get Donald Trump reelected. Well, I think people are, are worried, and I understand that, that potentially this could end up re-electing Donald Trump. I don't believe that, but let's just, let's, let me just give you one statistic, okay. which I think yeah. is important. Uh, first off, uh, currently, as we sit today, 42% of the electorate affiliate themselves either as a registered independent, 30%, and 12% say, I affiliate myself with an, as an independent because I no longer see myself part of the extreme of both parties. Now, that 42% is greater than the percentage of either party. I get that, but it doesn't mean that when push comes to shove, they will abandon their party with both sides more entrenched but they, but they have not had a credible choice. So let me read you some of the blowback. Yeah. You've read it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Democratic presidential candidate Julian Castro says you, quote, give the best hope of getting Trump reelected. Washington State Democratic Party chair, your home state, Seattle, Washington. Two words for you, just don't. Uh-huh. Dan Pfeiffer, senior advisor to President Obama, calls the idea half-baked. Mm-hmm. They all believe with countless other Democrats, that you getting in this race, if you do, will do nothing but help ensure a second term for President Trump. What do you see that they all don't, other than those poll numbers? What I see is that the majority of Americans are not being represented by the far-right extreme of the Republican Party, the far-left extreme of the Democratic Party, and I think lifelong Republicans and lifelong Democrats given a legitimate choice for a better way, will find a home. Now, I'm going to go out to the American people over the next three months. What I hope to do is share my story and ignite a national movement. I think there's already a national conversation about this, for sure. Yeah. Um, Look. Why why do you think so many people have, why do you think we've gotten this kind of unbelievable reaction? Why? I, I don't know. But what I do know is the president wants you to run. Not only did he tweet as much, but yeah. Maggie Haberman in the New York Times is reporting this morning that this week at a fundraiser, he told his supporters he wants you to run because he thinks it will help get him reelected. Well, he should be careful for what he wishes for. Up next, more of my conversation with former Starbucks chairman and CEO Howard Schultz and his revealing personal journey from public housing in Brooklyn, New York, to a potential bid for the White House. Word association. I'm going to give you a name, and I want your first reaction. President Trump. Despicable. Secretary Clinton. Honorable. Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, Highly respected. Senator Kamala Harris. I don't know her. Uh, Seems like a nice person. I just don't know her. Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Seasoned politician uh, who means well. Abraham Lincoln. The best of the best. Hmm. What about folks who say we have already given a shot in the White House to a white billionaire businessman from New York? Granted a different borough. Yeah, I'm very proud of my Brooklyn roots, as you know, but you know, I'm, I'm self-made. I'm living proof of the American dream. I think um, President Trump has done almost everything possible to discredit the dignity, 
the civility, the values, the respectfulness of the Oval Office with no degree of, of any sense of responsibility to the American people. What I would say is look at my life experience, not so much what I've done at Starbucks, but what I've learned along the way. And uh, my deep, deep concern, my empathic concern uh, for the American people, and also my concern for our standing in the world. And I think the, the, the word that really comes to mind is authentic, truthful leadership. You have been a lifelong Democrat. Those are your words, not mine. Yes. Lifelong Democrat. Yeah. You've given money almost solely to Democrats over the years until 2011 when you stopped giving to, to, to politicians. Um, as we sit here today, are, are you a Democrat in any way? No, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not a Democrat. When did you stop being a Democrat? Uh, well, I voted for Hillary Clinton. That's, been, that's public knowledge. Uh, I, I think over the last two and a half years or so, mm -hmm. I became so profoundly concerned with the conditions in the country um, and the, the level of self-interest and self-preservation of both parties. Um, do, you I, go ahead. do you think you'd be running if Hillary Clinton had won? No, I wouldn't be. I, I, probably not, no. Uh, but you, you mentioned Mike Bloomberg you yeah. know, earlier. Uh, I can't speak for Mike Bloomberg, but if Mike Bloomberg would have run as an independent, there's a good chance he'd be president. Today. He does not think so. Here's well, what he's he, not going to say that. Well, here's what he said this week. Yeah. It's pretty straight yeah. forward and pointed. Yeah. Quote, the data was very clear and very consistent. Given the strong pull of partisanship and realities of the electoral college system, there's no way an independent can win. That's truer today than ever before. Do you see something he doesn't? Yes, I do. What? Yes, I do. He saw all the numbers. He poured a ton of money into this. Yeah, well, this is a very different time uh, than 2015. Very different time. He says it's true now. Yeah, well, he's made his decision. I respect his decision. If he's going to run, he's going to run for a as a mm -hmm. Democrat. Good luck to him. I respect Mike Bloomberg. I have a different view, and my view is this. Uh, if you go back over the last 40 years, mm -hmm. uh, more or less, the presidency has been decided by less than 10 states, battleground states. So if I just isolate that and say, that basically means that the majority of people who voted, it didn't matter because those states were either red or blue. Is, is that our democracy that we should accept? I say no. So if I decide to run for president, for the first time in over 40 years, this will be a 50-state race in which there will be three choices. I'll be on the ballot of every state and every county and every district and everyone's vote, everyone's vote, not in eight or, tw or 10 states. Everyone's vote will matter for the first time and I see a path to 270. What I do not see, this is important. I, I know you want to interrupt me. No. What I do not see. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you. I got all yeah. the time in the okay. world. Let's what keep I, going. What I do not see is a, is a far left, progressive, democratic person who wins the nomination defeating Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump will be reelected if a far left progressive Democrat is a nominee. And this, so any, any, that, that's a false narrative that if Howard Schultz got into the race, he's going to elect Donald Trump. So More Republicans are interested in leaving the Republican Party, but they have nowhere to go because they dislike with venom President Trump. That makes me want to know if 
there is any Democrat who could get in this race that would make you change your mind. It, it, it clearly sounds like you're saying if it is someone on the far left, like a Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, versus Trump, then you think there is a path for you. But what if Joe Biden runs? Well, we'll have to see. What if someone more centrist runs? Is there, I, is we'll there to, so we'll maybe there may be someone? Well, we'll have to see what happens. You know, first of all, we have a long way to go. Uh, I don't know if, if uh, Vice President Biden's going to run. I don't know if Mike Bloomberg's going to run. I don't know if either one of them could, could get the nomination. But like last night is an example. As I said, I, I don't know Senator Harris. But just last night, she made a statement on your network. That, and I'm paraphrasing, but she made a statement that in terms of, of free government paid health care, that if she was president, she would wipe out the entire insurance industry. Now, to me... She is supportive of Medicare for all and is supportive of that eliminating private insurance in this country. Eliminating. So you know what that means? What do you think of that? Well, that's a very cavalier statement. What it means is that millions of people who work in the insurance industry, as well as the adjacency, are going to lose their jobs. Is that why you called it not American? Well, I think it's it's the wrong way to approach this. So these are... These are complex issues, very complex but issues. Why do you think that on that point, because yeah. it's really important, it's going to be a central yes. part of this election, yeah. you know. Why do you think Medicare for All, in your words, is not American? It's, it's not that it's not American, it's unaffordable. So let me, let me be very clear. Because you called it Hel- not American healthcare, healthcare has been central to my entire life. We've just talked about that the first company in America to provide comprehensive health insurance to part-time people. I I know a lot about this issue. It's deeply in my heart. Now, what I believe is that every American has the right to affordable health care as a statement. I also believe that the Affordable Care Act under President Obama was the right thing to do to provide over 30 million people who did not have insurance to get insurance. But now that we look back on it, the premiums have skyrocketed, and we need to go back to the Affordable Care Act, refine it, and fix it. In addition to that, in addition to that, we need corporations to have more skin in the game. We talked about that earlier, and we must have self-interest and the lobbying efforts of the pharmaceutical companies come to the table with a level of transparency to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Now, what's under- your plan? No, I'm not going to even, I don't have a plan today. I'm not yet running for president. But what I will say is that under the current government situation of Democrats and Republicans, just answer the question for me. Why hasn't there been, under a Democratic president and a Republican president, a real solve to health care? Why? Why? It's, why? A, it's, it's the same question. Why hasn't there been a real solve to the immigration and issue? And I understand, and I want to get on yeah. to immigration. Yeah. You say you don't have a plan and you're not running for president yet, yeah. but you're seriously considering it, and you're the man who has run the company that for more than two decades has given health care to even its part-time workers. So I think the average American might be wondering, Howard, if you could do it at Starbucks for employees, yes. why shouldn't the... American government through taxpayer dollars do it. I'll tell you exactly why. So let's take the state of California as a proxy. The state budget for the state of California is approximately $170 billion. Governor Newsom ran on single payer. Do you know what the cost of single payer is in the state of California? 
Any idea? What is it? $400 billion. Look. Now, can a state budget of $175 billion afford a $400 billion health care plan? So the price tag on it, uh, whether you look at the Urban Institute numbers or the Mercatus yeah. numbers, are $32 trillion for Medicare for All over a decade. But yeah. Senator Sanders says of his plan, yes, you pay more in taxes for it. The health care savings that Americans aren't spending to private insurers is $2 trillion. You say uh, it's 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 this is not true, and, and let's not we can't ignore. Do you think ignore, Democrats are lying to the American? No, I don't think they're no. No one's lying. Okay. I think they 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 believe in these ideas. They want to see the idea these ideas come into fruition. But uh, under Democrats and Republicans both, we are currently sitting with a twenty-one and a half trillion dollar debt. A debt that the president said, by the way, he would eliminate if he's in office for eight years. Not a fact. We'll get to that. Well, you heard what he to recently said. He said, I, I'll be out of office. It won't be on my watch. I didn't hear that. To put a button yeah. on it. Okay. Um, what are you looking for? You're going out across the country over the next three or four months, and you're going to listen to people and talk to people. Yeah. What do you need to hear or see that would make you not run? Meaning, well, is there any chance you don't run? Well, I think there's a, there's a chance I don't run. That's why I'm saying today, I, I don't know. I, this is what I'm seriously considering. I just, I'm interested in what you're looking yeah. for. Okay, first off, um, we must remove President Trump from office. That's job one. In addition to that, we must have the right president for 2020. Primarily because these issues that we're talking about, which is just a slice of the systemic issues facing the country, as well as our standing in the world. And we have not yet talked about the possibility of an economic issue that could seriously damage the current situation in America for American families. We must have the right president. So I'm going to go out in the next three months. Uh, it's obviously using uh, the book as an opportunity and speak to the American people. What I'm hoping to try and do is I believe we need to disrupt the system and reimagine it. If enough Americans believe that I, uh, together with them, can disrupt and change the system and an independent person should run for president, I will make my decision in the affirmative. If, the, if I believe that I'm the only one that thinks this uh, and there's a small amount of people who support me, yeah. then it won't happen. Will you run if Mike Bloomberg jumps, jumps in the race? Uh, Mike Bloomberg's jumping in the race would not affect me. It wouldn't? No. Last night, you said, I'm not running against anyone. You said you're running because you believe the system is broken. Yeah. And it shouldn't be just about two parties. And that made me wonder, and I couldn't stop thinking about this last night. Okay. Are you also running to try to change the system? Yes. Or if you run, is it only to win? No. No, I'm, I'm, listen. Meaning, would you run thinking you could no. lose, but shake up the system and change it four more years, eight more years? The question you're asking is, what do I believe? I believe that the current system of broken politics, revenge politics, a lack of compromise, self-interest, self-preservation, constant party over country, day in and day out, is presenting a situation that could be cataclysmic for the country in terms of we are on a collision course with time, in terms of our democracy, our values, our ability to come together, the division in the country. The only way I believe 
that that can change if there's a new level of leadership that changes the system. And I would only do this if I thought I can win. In the final analysis, if you run, Howard, and if you run, you take more away from Democrats than Republicans, and we don't know. We don't know what that would be, and I've looked at all the polling yeah. back to the exit polls with Ross Perot. We just don't know. This isn't Ross Perot. But if that's the final analysis, yes. that President Trump gets a second term and that you pull more <laughs> from Democrats, would that keep you up at night? I would never put myself in a position where I would be the person who re-elects Donald Trump, but that is not what I believe today. Up next, more of my conversation with former Starbucks chairman and CEO Howard Schultz and his revealing personal journey from public housing in Brooklyn, New York, to a potential bid for the White House. I know you've said it's too early to talk about running mates, but here's what I want to know. If you run, yeah. is it important for you to have a woman on your ticket? I think it's the most important thing to do is to have the, the highest qualified person. And if that's a woman, that would be wonderful. But I, I haven't thought about... Well, you talked about Ginny Romney, no, no, head I was of asked, IBM. No, I was asked, the simple question is, what, what CEO do I respect? And I talked about Ginny Romney, who's a good friend of mine, who is a wonderful woman. What about a Republican running mate? I think that would be interesting and that certainly demonstrate a centrist position, which I believe in. The president tweeted this week that you don't have the guts to run for president. Are you going to engage President Trump on Twitter? Probably not. I mean, I, I think, I, you know, I really, I, the country is so exhausted by this president and his tweets. Uh, I, I'm not running to win the Twitter primary. Are you worried at all, Howard, about the potential negative impact of you running on Starbucks employees. You've seen some of the tweets and the conversation about boycotting Starbucks if you run. Are you worried about that? No, I mean, I think Starbucks is as healthy a company as it's ever been in its history. We had a great transition from me to Kevin Johnson. They just had record earnings, the highest level of, uh, of success of any quarter in our history. The company's doing so well in China, no. I have no, no concern about that. Let's talk about funding. Yeah. How much of your own money are you willing to invest if you run? Uh, well, I've already spent a fair amount of money over the past year in thinking about this. How much have you spent so far? Uh, I mean, we don't have to get into specifics about that, but I'm, I'm using my financial resources to put myself in a position to answer the question. Um, but I, I would look for support from the American people in terms of volunteering in any other way they want to be engaged with me. So but you'd I, I don't, accept donations from average Americans? Uh, I, we might. I, I haven't made that decision. But, but I, I, I said something which I think is important. Yep. I don't think anyone can buy the presidency. And, uh, and that includes uh, Mayor Bloomberg. No one can buy the presidency. It's going to be up to the American people. Why do you bring up Mayor Bloomberg there? Oh, because uh, he might run for president and he would self-fund his, his, uh, his, his prospects. So you haven't decided if you would self-fund? I have not decided fully. that. How much money are you willing to invest of your own, in addition to yeah. donations from others? I asked yeah. because we I'm, looked I'm at willing, a billion dollar race last time, yeah, so 500 million? I'm willing to do what's necessary. And my conviction and commitment to this 
is based on my love of the country and my profound concern about where we are today. And the, these statistics, as an example, if I just finish this sentence. Yeah. Okay, so approximately 40% of the American people do not have $400 for, in case of a crisis. About 5 million young people, many African American and Latino, are not in school, not in work. One out of six people are food insecure every night. Now, behind these statistics are real people, real families. And remember my childhood. Remember the shame, the insecurity, the scars. I still have them. The reason I'm here today and the reason I'm thinking about this this way is because I want to help those people. In addition to that, we haven't spent one minute on foreign policy, not one minute. And in less than two years, this president has basically fractured almost every relationship we have with our allies that needs to be restored. This president has made a terrible decision in Syria. This president has done so much damage to our relationship in China with a ridiculous trade and tariff war which is resulting on attacks on consumers and severely hurting everyone who's a farmer in America. These are real issues. So you beat me to it. Yeah. On those foreign policy issues, let's dive into them. Afghanistan. Yeah. Would you withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan? I, I would not, because the Taliban is, is in, a, in Afghanistan. Our presence there is important in that region. And Venezuela, right now, seeing what's happening, is it the correct role for the United States to be actively engaged in trying to oust President Maduro? And if so, should a military option be employed? I, I think the position to oust him is correct because the election, I think, was fraudulent. But to use military action as a response would be a mistake. But this is an area where President Trump consistently gets it wrong. And that is not having the humility to listen to his advisors and surround himself with people who have a better understanding of statesmanship and diplomatic relationship. This is not a case for military action. On China, yeah. which you have traveled to China countless times. Yes. Starbucks has been opening a store in China every 15 hours. Yeah. The FBI director this morning, Christopher Wray, just said that the counterintelligence threat from China is, quote, more concerning than any counterintelligence threat out there. How would you handle China? Well, I would take that very seriously, and I would be very, very tough diplomatically, again, uh, with regard to China. But I do not believe that getting into a trade war with China, which results on the back of a consumer tax on the on U.S. Uh, people, is the right way. But we need a strict diplomatic relationship with China. But let's, 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 let's go back to one thing. It is in the national interest of America to cooperate with China on two specific areas that are critically important. And that is, we need their help and counsel and support with dealing with North Korea. Getting out of TPP was a tremendous mistake by President Trump, giving China a stronghold and displacing us economically in the entire region. But we have serious challenges with China, which are real. The currency issue, the trade issues, now cybersecurity, uh, and we need tough, tough negotiations, but not the approach that President Trump has taken. North Korea, President Trump is preparing for a second summit with Kim Jong-un. Would you be meeting with Kim Jong-un right now? I would not. I would not give him the stage. I would not give him the notoriety. Uh, no, that, that is not how I would proceed. 
immigration, I'm interested in what you would do and what you would propose as president for the roughly 11 million undocumented yeah. immigrants currently in this yeah. country, not just the dreamers. Yeah. What would you do? Yeah, so let's, let's get this one exactly right, okay, in terms of how I want to answer this. Because uh, this is the perfect proxy for the Democrats and Republicans not working well together. But I need to go back in history just a bit. So first off, President Bush and President Obama both individually tried to pass comprehensive immigration. A Republican president and a Democratic president both failed because the oppositional party would not allow them to have a political victory. That in of itself, isolate that as a primary example of Democrats and Republicans unwilling to do what's right for the American people. When 75% of the American people right now sitting here today want to see a solution that is sensible to immigration. So what would I do? Yep. First off, I agree with the Republicans completely that we need strict, stiff border security. But not, but not, a wall. not with a wall, which is insanity, but we have the best, highest grade technology companies who are so innovative in America and sitting down with them for one day, we would be able to create the most sophisticated, high-tech, preventive opportunity for border crossing. So I agree. I also agree with the Republicans, not the Democrats, that ICE has a major role to play in this. But Republicans want to strip mothers from babies and put kids in internment camps. I don't agree with that. What's the answer? First off, it's... Path to citizenship for those 11 million? Well, let me get to the dreamers first. Is we're a country of immigrants. We're a country based on humanity and fairness. I think it's un-American for the dreamers not to have a pathway to citizenship, and they should be given that. With regard to the 11 million people who are un unauthorized, let them get in line, pay taxes, pay a fee, and over time, give them the opportunity to become Americans. But they remain under a Schultz presidency, if you had your druthers, those 11 million undocumented immigrants would remain in this country on a path to citizenship? Correct. You would not send them to their home country? No, I would not. And in terms of economic growth and the history of America, the, the, the falsehood of President Trump is creating all of this rhetoric around you know, Im around immigrants being so bad for the country and such bad people, when we know that all of us are here as a result of immigration. So let's get a little bit smarter about this. Let's allow people in who could real bring real value to the country. Let's use the immigration as a catalyst for economic growth. But let's not fall into the false narrative that these people are coming to take our jobs away or coming to do harm to America. The statistics bear this out that that is not true. Income inequality. Yes. Story of your life, right? Yes. There are, uh, you've already condemned the, the Trump tax cut, right? Yes. The corporate tax yeah, cut. Yeah, I was wrong. There are a few different proposals out there now from progressive liberal Democrats on how to tackle this. So let, let's take two of them, okay? First, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, a congresswoman from Queens, supports a 70% marginal tax rate on the rich. Your eyebrows go up when I say that. That is on their, you know, 10 millionth dollar and above. As you know, we saw a 90% marginal tax rate under a Republican, President yeah. Eisenhower. Yeah. What do you think of that? Well, let's go back to the idea that if I ran for president as an independent, 
I'm going to steal Democratic votes away from President Trump. Let's go a different way. If the Democrats are proposing anything close to a 70% level of income tax, how many core Democrats are going to be supportive of a move towards socialism? Not very many. President Trump will get reelected. You don't support even a marginal tax rate at 70% on the $10 million? Uh, no, I do not. Why, why should we punish? It? What's, the, what's the American dream? The American dream is to create opportunity. The American dream is to rise above your standing in life. Now we're going to provide punitive tax rates for people who have succeeded. Now what we need is comprehensive tax reform. So your what, next what, question is probably a big What would that look like? Elizabeth Warren. That was going to yeah. be my next okay. question. But what would, what would, how would your plan then reduce the income gap from what it is today, widening every year? If it's, you know, is it raising corporate taxes immensely? I think the 21% tax rate was wrong. I would not be supportive of that if I was president. But would you raise corporate taxes? Uh, I would not be supportive of 21%. That should give you some idea as to what I would do. Um, and I also think there has to be significant incentives of corporations to do more for their people, training, education, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously health insurance. Uh, but we need comprehensive tax reform. I'm not here to specifically get into the Schultz plan. I can just promise you one thing, that if I decide to run for president as yeah. a centrist independent, I will lay out plans that will speak to the majority of Americans who no longer have a voice. Elizabeth Warren's proposal is a wealth tax. Oh, God. It's an additional 2% yeah. tax on Americans whose net worth, this isn't just an income tax, yeah, I know, actually, I know. it's an asset tax. Yeah. What do you think of that? Is over $50 million. <laughs> yeah. Good idea? Well, first of all, it's an idea that has no merit. It, 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 she knows that there's no way this could come to pass. This, these are just false campaign promises to make noise. And again, it's punitive. No, I don't agree with that. The national debt, we're approaching $22 trillion. Again, the president said if he served for eight years, he could eliminate it. Well, obviously that's not going to happen. But you, you, your data, he said something else, which is worth repeating. He recently said... And I, I'm, this is pretty much the quote. I'm not really worried about the national debt because by the time I leave office, someone else will have to take care of it. He said that. Mm. Now, yeah. that is so irresponsible. And, and, but where are, the, where are all the Democrats in the last two years? The last, where are they with regard to fiscal responsibility? Well, you've said we have to tackle entitlements. Yeah, well... I think we have to look at everything. We have to look at economic growth. We have to look at waste in the system. We have to have a serious conversation about entitlements. We have to look at it all and ask a question. And that is, how do we take care of the American people in ways that will raise their standing in life and not bankrupt the country? But one thing I do know as a business person, that if America was a business today and was sitting with $21 trillion on its balance sheet, it would be close to insolvency. And so someone has to get at this. But where are the Democrats on all of this? Do you hear anyone talking about the national debt? No. And where are I the hear fewer and fewer Republicans yes, well, showing here's any concern okay. about the national okay. debt. And with regard to the Republicans, for eight years, eight solid years, they banged on President Obama, McConnell, uh, Speaker Boehner, Speaker Ryan. Not a word for the last two years, and now they're adding a trillion dollars. So both parties 
are mm. co recklessly complicit with regard to national debt because your two children and my grandchildren are going to be burdened with the immorality of that national debt and the country will not be sustainable if we don't get after it and this again this is about fiscal responsibility and leadership and, and by the way you have been talking about national debt yeah. for people that don't know yeah for almost a, a decade I mean, 2011, the pledge asking other CEOs do yeah. not donate until Washington gets its fiscal house in order, and it's just gotten worse. That was under a Democratic president. We need to wrap up, but okay. I have Are you getting what you a need? few final questions here. Okay. Um, on a really serious note, anti-Semitism is on the rise in this country. Uh, you know, the, the, the ADL uh, points to an increase in, in anti-Semitic incidents over just the last two years. Do you have concerns about running as a, as a Jewish American for the presidency? And do you think America is, is willing to elect a Jewish president, given those horrifying statistics? Well, I believe that the country is ready for a Jewish president. Uh, I certainly am I'm well aware of the anti-Semitism that is growing in the country and in the world, mm -hmm. which greatly concerns me. But again, I have faith in the American people. We, we elected an African-American president. John F. Kennedy was Catholic. They said that he should not be president. Um, there certainly are security issues that uh, anyone who's going to run for president is going to have to consider, especially someone who's Jewish. But, but I have faith in the American people that will look at me not as running as someone who is Jewish, but someone who is American who happens to be Jewish. Any regrets in your life so far? Uh, of course. I mean, I think, uh, I, you know, I write in the book that I had a, I made a, a very significant professional mistake when I acquired the Seattle basketball team and I sold it. And the regret was after I sold it, it was moved. Uh, and that was very unfortunate for me and the city of Seattle. You uh, actually, you write, I, ha I had squandered the public trust that I, that I bought into and you say, I will, I will forever be deeply sorry. Yeah. Is there, a, is there a leadership lesson there? Yes. I think the lesson is when you have power and responsibility, you have to demonstrate restraint. And uh, unfortunately, at that time in my life, I made a very serious mistake and I apologize for it. I can't undo it. Uh, and I have to live with that. Uh, it's unfortunate. Let's end on this because you, you recently went back to Canarsie recently. I think you got on the L train. You went back there. Yeah walked in the door of the public housing project where you grew up and up that elevator and knocked on the apartment door, I think on the seventh floor. When you were a kid growing up in Brooklyn, whether it was hiding in that stairwell or hiding in your room, did you ever think you'd have a shot like this? No, I don't, I, I don't think I would have allowed myself to dream that big of a dream, but I did believe uh, that my mother was right, that our standing in life was not going to define what I would ultimately be able to do. And I have to link that with why am I here today? I'm here because I don't think those kids in the projects today have anything close to the opportunity that I had growing up. And that has to be restored. So the, the real issue for me, uh, regardless of what happens over the next three months, is that we, we must restore trust in the Oval Office, trust in government, and faith and confidence in the promise of the country. Will you come back and let us know first if you're going to run? 
I will definitely come back, of course. <laughs> Howard Schultz, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate thank the time. You. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.